two plus years ago, I moved $800 million from BlackRock. You know, it was, I thought, detrimental to the state of Louisiana and the citizens of the state and how we make our livelihood. Well, welcome back to The Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. We are proudly sponsored by MuniPro, the Government Finance Officers Association, Odyssey Advisors, and Build America Mutual. I'm Justin Marlowe, and I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, fiscal policy expert, Marylander, well in preparation for the holiday season, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. <laughs> That's a really apt description right now, because as soon as uh, the, the day after Thanksgiving hits, I start panicking about presents and holiday shopping and all that stuff. But we did k- take care of, I guess, initiating our son into a one of my favorite holiday traditions, which is watching the movie A Christmas Story. And we he watched it for the first time last night. So uh, I think yeah. as an adult, it's even funnier now because I think the last <laughs> time I watched it, I was a teenager. But now it's like, it's, it's really it's it's hilarious. I was cackling for most of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's some subtle hidden adult themes there that you pick <laughs> up uh, later in life. Do you have a view on the, the follow up uh, thing that they did recently on the not yet, but I will because we decided we're going to watch that one uh, next next Sunday for movie night. So I'll keep you posted. Yeah, we'll have to get your uh, get your take on it. There's been some controversy <laughs> around whether I it's see. whether it's up to it as a sequel. I have a view. We'll get into that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, excellent, excellent Christmas, uh, excellent holiday season tradition. Well, so um, we are fortunate to have on the Public Money Pod today, uh, Louisiana Treasurer John Schroeder, who is uh, going to tell us all about the things that we need to know when we think about public money in Louisiana. It's really an interesting state. You know, when we when we talk to state treasurers and, and city CFOs and others, you know, there's always things that are unique about every place. But certainly in, in Louisiana, it seems like a lot of those really unique characteristics touch public money in some very direct ways. Obviously, being a, a largely kind of fossil fuels-driven economy, that uh, the in so many ways the main economic development question in Louisiana these days is around kind of diversifying and, and balancing investments in fossil fuels with investments in other kinds of renewable energy, and trying to do that in a way that's on a time frame that works for people, that is realistic, that doesn't isn't too disruptive with respect to the state's tax structure, for instance. In so many ways, that's the defining characteristic of state and local public money in Louisiana is that kind of boom and bust cycle that comes with dependence on oil and gas in particular. Certainly with Treasurer Schroeder, uh, anybody who's followed the the ESG debate knows that uh, his name is often front and center. So we're excited to talk to him about where he has come down on the treasurer's role in uh, ESG investing, and in some cases, uh, really actively and aggressively pushing back on the emerging ESG investing philosophy that we've seen take hold in a lot of other places. And uh, also very very, very high profile in the world of uh, unclaimed property, something that we talk about often when we talk to state treasurers. So lots to get into uh, with Treasurer Schroeder. Liz, when uh, you think about some of the things that make Louisiana unique and uh, Treasurer Schroeder and in, in his role, what comes to mind? Yeah, I think a lot about um, the the pension issue and this the, the concept of what is the role of a pension system in terms of the overall state economy and how does that relate to fiduciary duty uh, one of the things that the treasurer has talked about is is the the need for or or his desire really for the pension system to look more for pension investments to look more directly at 
Louisiana, Louisiana's economy. And that has come out in, in two ways with him. And, and one is this the divesting in companies, um, financial companies that have pro have a pro ESG investment philosophy. Uh, as you mentioned, I think uh, BlackRock, and, and we get into this with him, but BlackRock is one of those companies that the state of Louisiana, Louisiana has stopped doing business with because it, it, it has a pro uh, ESG investment mindset. So that's that's one way because, as you said, uh, Louisiana's economy is um, at least partially reliant on oil. Oil is a very, very big deal for Louisiana and companies that go away from investing in oil in in this way can go against the Louisiana economy. So that's one way is, is divesting. And the other way is taking your investments and putting it in the state of Louisiana um, in, in terms of like state infrastructure and that kind of thing. And this actually reminds me of Alabama's pension system. Dan Valk and I wrote a story years ago uh, profiling the head of Alabama's uh, pension system. And that was very much his philosophy is to take pension dollars and invest them directly in mostly real estate assets in the state of Alabama. And that idea of when you do that, not only do you are you making an investment that then gets a return on its dollar, it's there's this multiplier effect because that investment is creating jobs in the state and then blah and you know and so on and so on. That's not something. First of all, that's very very difficult. I think to quantify. Um, that was one of the things that Dan and I addressed in our story. Is like theoretically, you can you can kind of nod your head and say, yeah, I see how that happens. But there there remain the the questions of you know fiduciary duty again in in this case Alabama, but the same question for Louisiana. You know the economic growth in that state is not among the fastest. So if you're following your fiduciary duty, are you really following that if you're investing it in a state that is that is not growing very quickly? So you know, there's that. And that, it's the same question for divestments. I wrote a, a long story short newsletter some time ago about the, the idea of divesting, taking your money out of something. And the story I, I wrote was about how Indiana's pension fund had been directed by the state legislators to, to, to divest from pro-ESG companies. It's a very uh, general way of putting it. But in the past, divestment has not has financially not worked out great for other pension systems. Uh, CalPERS divested from tobacco, and a study later found that that ended up being a net loss for the pension system. So divesting in currently now in, in companies that seek out pro ESG type investments, you know, if that's the way the economy is going, that may ultimately end up costing costing a pension system. And again, you get back to that fiduciary duty question. So that was a very long winded answer. I did not mean it to be that long, but it's a it's a complicated topic topic as we as uh, as we get into with the treasurer. Yeah, absolutely. And it's I would recommend everybody take a look at those pieces that you mentioned, including and in particular the Alabama pension piece, which is a sort of a classic in this space for those of us who who read that. There's and not just because of the of the way that you present the complexity, but just because of some of the really really interesting, colorful folks who are involved in, oh, yeah. in a lot of these decisions, <laughs> and and that just I think adds to the kind of the lore around them. It's such a tricky issue, and very curious to hear what the treasurer has to say about this. But in so many ways, when we get into these these debates over um, all these issues, whether it's diversifying an economy away from a particular type of industry, in this case, oil and gas. ESG investing, whatever it might be, in so many ways, what we're arguing over is the time frame. Mm. Nobody, nobody disputes that moving away from fossil fuels is is a, a bad thing, or I should say, nobody would nobody would would argue that 
uh, diversifying away from fossil fuels is a good thing. It's just a question of the time frame in which you do it. No one would argue that investing in a in a state's economy with public pension dollars is necessarily a bad thing if it's done in a transparent and 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 very clear way. It's just a question of how long can you, should you be willing to wait for a return on those dollars? Because it's often going to be a very different kind of return than if you're putting it in more traditional equities or or fixed income or whatever it might be. And that has always been fascinating to me because that then runs com- contrary to the political time frame of most things, which is, you know, two years or four years yeah. or maybe six years. And so often what we're really getting at is is sort of a conflict over what we mean by near term versus intermediate term versus long term. And it's a really interesting tension to watch. And with this is the case with many things in public money, you know, the public the dollars are always there. <laughs> and the people managing those dollars tend to be there for a while. So public money folks have a unique place in this in this space dealing with a lot of these issues. So a quick note to our listeners, Treasurer Schroeder had some connectivity issues during our interview, so we had to take the uh, take the interview from a couple locations with a little bit of background noise, so uh, please just ignore that. Thanks. Well, please, we're pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Louisiana Treasurer John Schroeder. Treasurer Schroeder, thanks so much for giving us some time today. Yeah, as long as I'm in warm South Louisiana and I don't have to come to <laughs> Chicago... <laughs> All good. <laughs> I hear that. Uh, welcome to the pod, Treasurer. It's a it's a real pleasure to have you. If you could uh, start out for us and for our, for our listeners um, who don't directly follow Louisiana, can you kind of just give us a lay of the land? Tell us a little bit about the state's financial overall financial position and you know reserves and and uh, kind of general stuff like that. Yeah, well, I don't know why anybody wouldn't follow the finances of the state of Louisiana. You know, I've been my sixth year, finishing up my sixth year state treasurer. I spent uh, nine, almost 10 years in the legislature on the budget committee. So the finance side of the government is what is my b- biggest interest, which is why I ran for state treasurer. But uh, living in South Louisiana with the, the, the hurricanes that, thank God, we, we managed to get through this hurricane season without a hurricane. Because the last two years prior has been just, I can't even describe. It's just been awful. But the but the the flip side to having these storms and, and the pandemic is the amount of money that is poured into our economy. We've seen unprecedented amounts of money uh, for a small state like Louisiana. You know, we have about 4.6 million people here. So the pandemic had a major effect on us. And we're a poor state on top of that. Probably almost half our state is on some t- type of uh, medical uh, assistance from the feds and Medicaid or Medicare. You know, so we we took a big hit from the COVID, and and but the the amount of money that is bounced back in, or, or funneled into our state certainly has helped prop the economy. But we're, but we're seeing unprecedented amounts of money in our reserve funds, which were really um, really low when I became state treasurer. You know, coming off eight, nine years in a row of budget deficits in this state. To be where we are right now is unbelievable. Now, I'm I'm very conservative when it comes to the finances of the state. So, you know, I think we ought to be spending more money paying down our debt and, and using this unprecedented time to, to pay down our debt. And I don't think the legislature's done a good enough job doing that. But again, my job is to be the fiscal sound voice for the state. But right now, all things are good, you know, but I, I worry about what's up in the future. 
and government tends to live for today, unlike you do in your private lives, we don't plan for tomorrow. And that always seems to catch us. And it will again, as sure as we're sitting here talking today, when this economy goes south, and it always does, it's, you know, I'm 62 in business and I've been up and down three times in, in my in my business career. So it's just a matter of when, not if. And government doesn't prepare well for when. But I would tell you right now, it's as good as it's ever been is from, from a cash standpoint. Uh, certainly, uh, our bank accounts are flush with cash. The the money coming into the state, is it is it wage growth? Is it investments? Do you have a kind of a, an idea of what the broader areas are? Well, yeah, if you, you don't believe in trickle down, um, you know, when you, when you look at the m- amount of federal money that is poured into our state from recovery, whether it was recovery from from the pandemic, several billion dollars. And, you know, when you when you state general fund budgets about 10 billion and you pour in three and a half um, from another source and, and that money funnels through business and people's hands, you know, a certain portion of that's making it back to the state coffers. And then on top of that, we, we're, we're coming off of two major hurricane seasons where we saw unprecedented damage. We had a lot of federal money come in on the back of that. So, you know, it takes a while for this money to sort of filter through. And it's going to, when I say it take a while, it's it's out there working. It's doing its thing, right? And we're, we, we see the result of that. Look, being in business and being in government for a while, I know that's going to come to an end. You know, we're, we're sort of spending money on a lot of things that I don't think we should, uh, that aren't priorities of state government. They're more political priorities. But the, no, that's a prerogative of the, leg, of the legislature and the current governor. Me personally, as the, st- the state treasurer and somebody who answers for the finances of the state, I'd like to see us pour more money into state assets, uh, infrastructure, pay down some debt, then squander this opportunity. I, I want to believe this will never happen again. So if it does never happen again, I think we've missed a, an opportunity to really, really make up some ground uh, for a poor state because... Our job growth isn't where it should be. We have more people leaving in the state than coming to the state. You know, we're one of the worst in the nation with, without migration. So the, the money that has come to the state could have been a real catalyst, in my opinion. But uh, again, I'm just here to give my opinions, not to force the policy. Well, speaking of the legislature, you talked uh, a second ago about your background in the legislature. And, and even before then, uh, you came to public service through a career in law enforcement. If you could tell us a little bit about about how all of that experience, and in particular coming up through law enforcement, shaped how you view your your job as treasurer. That's a good question, and only because I've, I don't know if I've ever been asked that before, at least publicly. A little background on that. I, I, my degree's in criminal justice, and um, I first went to the Army, the military, and was in the infantry, the military intelligence, and then I became a CID agent, which is the Criminal Investigation Division. And within that organization, I was a narcotics agent. My military, my law enforcement career, I was in law enforcement for a short time after that. I had a serious eye injury when I was about 29 and changed careers, and I've been in business for myself, myself since. What my law enforcement background brings to my government job and my government space is a zero tolerance for cronyism and corruption. And I got to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, it's disturbing. And I, I, I deal with it weekly, sometimes daily, and it's, it's infected. 
and I've watched money really destroy the political process because people make decisions based on money versus what's best for government or what's best for the for the citizens. Now, you might not have expected that answer, but that's really what I bring to the job more so than anything is just a intolerance um, for, the, for the cronyism and, and the corruption that I see. And it's one of the things when I ran for governor that I talked a lot about, but that just wasn't a winning message. But it's probably a message that it probably affects where government and, and the people come together and where people have lost faith and confidence in government at all levels, and not just here in Louisiana, you know, and I'm not talking about just state or federal government. I'm talking about at every level. Yeah. So I work hard every day to try to bring a lot of transparency, a lot of accountability. We started a, um, a website where you could go and see where every dollar in this state is spent, um, whether it be a local project, a state project, or whatever it is. Um, and I thought that would be highly popular and it hasn't been, but we still do it. I, I hope one day that, that it sort of clicks and people can go and see, see this for themselves because people have to hold their public officials accountable. Um, I'm not sh- quite sure how to, how to spin off on that to, to get to some, I think, uh, to, but we'll, we'll pretend I said something clever. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I know we wanted to spend uh, a bit of time here talking about about ESG or environmental, social and uh, governance is what that stands for, for folks who aren't familiar. Um, You've been quite active in what a lot of folks might call the ESG space. So let's start with a few questions. For one, how do you how do you define ESG? A force, facade, big corporations way to get to get their hands uh, on money. You know, I, I call it for what I what I see it. It's it's corporate America's partnership with the federal government to to push something that, uh, quite frankly, is years and years, if if not decades, away from being a fact. You know, I live in a in a state that relies a lot on fossil fuel, mm-hmm. and when you look at the data around the world, and you understand the data, meaning who how fossil fuel is used, where and how. This this world's not getting off of fossil fuel anytime soon, not in our lifetimes, and I'm older than both of y'all. Two plus years ago, I moved $800 million from BlackRock. You know, it was, I thought, detrimental to the state of Louisiana, the citizens of this state, and how we make our livelihood because they were they're basically trying to force policy down our throat, bypassing the political process. I'm an Army veteran. I believe in this process. I believe we elect our officials, and then we hold those officials accountable. Um, and if 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 there's policy that needs to be changed, there's a process to go through without corporate America basically blackmailing us and, and, and sort of forcing us to do one thing to get something else. And I refuse to participate in that. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by that, about corporate America um, push, pushing an agenda on you, if I'm interpreting that correctly? Yeah, so so corporate. When I say corporate America, it's not necessarily corporate America as much as it is the big banks who hold all the purse strings that steer corporate America. You know, this all started back for me almost six years ago. Believe it or not, when when a couple of banks after one of the mass shootings, which was unbelievably horrific, but the but the sent a message that. Um, that they belong, they thought that we should make every Louisianian have a license um, to carry a weapon not until you're 21. Well, I'm an Army veteran. 
I went in at 21, but most people in the Army are 18, 19, and 20. So how does that work? Our 18, 19, 20-year-olds are good enough to put on our streets to defend our country and in, in foreign land, but they're not good enough to carry a, a, a weapon or have a, a license. So that sort of started it for me back six years ago, and it has sort of transformed into a lot more than just about a license for a gun and, and banks were, were saying, you know what, if you have if you have a policy that's contrary to what we believe, then we're not going to do business with you. Or we're not going to allow you to do business with our bank. You know, and I thought that was against our constitutional rights. And um, so I pushed back. I banned a couple banks here in Louisiana six years ago. Uh, and then then this whole ESG thing has uh, come about over the last two plus years. So I think at the end of the day, it's up to the elected officials and the governors and the elected leaders of our states to run and manage our states the way they think is best. That's what you get elected to do. I don't answer to the bank boardrooms across the world. I answer to 4.6 million people in Louisiana. And, you know, if somebody else thinks that they can do better, then they can go run for office and, 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 and represent the people of Louisiana. My position is that um, I don't think it's corporate America's place to set policy in the state of Louisiana. There's a way to do that um, through the ballot box, and that's the, that's the country we live in. I support. I may not like who gets elected or when, but they do because that's the process that we all abide with and live by in this country, not by corporate America enforcing forcing its thoughts and policies upon the states and, and putting pressure, particularly on the fossil fuel states like Louisiana, Texas, and West Virginia, to name a few, to push their policy. It's complicated because it sounds good. It sounds like, man, well, certainly we care about the environment. We don't want to destroy the earth. I, I, I live in South Louisiana. We, the most, some of the most pristine land in America is right here in my backyard where we hunt and fish, and, and that's where we make our living. So I'm not reckless when it comes to the economy, but this is driven by money. And if you don't think it is, just go do your research. Just to follow up a little bit on <clears throat> the point that you were making a second ago about Louisiana's economy, if I heard, if I heard you correctly, Treasurer, you'd said that there's certainly Louisiana being a fossil fuel state stands to lose a lot if we suddenly decide that divestment from fossil fuels companies is the way to go. But I think I also heard you sort of suggest there that part of the problem is just the the time frame for this, right? So it's not necessarily that diversifying an economy away from fossil fuels is a bad thing, but it's having to do it in a what it seems like you see as a as a unreasonably short time frame. Is that fair to say? Oh that's and that's putting it that's saying it lightly, but that's exactly what I'm saying. You know, it's not even practical. It's not even no, it's not even close. I mean, it's comical. You know, when you when you look at the data and you look at the research and you read both sides of this, there's a billion people in this world right now who have no electricity, no running water. You think they're going to put windmills and do all these other things where and, and pay seven, eight dollars a gallon for gas? No, because it costs too much. So yeah, I want to be efficient. I don't want to be reckless in anything. But we've created this narrative like the earth is going to end tomorrow if we don't get rid of fossil fuels. Everything we do and, and, and eat is practically revolves around the fossil fuels in this world. And here's the worst thing about it, y'all. You're going to get me fired up here. 
You know who's leading the nation and explorate, uh, not the nation, the world and exploration and coal mining and, and fossil fuel production? China. China. So we want to punish the United States while we empower China and Venezuela. I mean, give me a break. BlackRock invests billions of dollars into China. So one of the things I did as treasure, not to get off the subject, but it's sort of all related. I wanted to know, whatever you want to call it, the big pie in the sky, the big star everybody is after, after in this country is our pension dollars. It's into the trillions of dollars. Okay. So I went and did some research. And, and back when I started, we had about 70 plus billion dollars in retirement dollars in the state of Louisiana. Well, when I did that research, only less than 1% of that money was invested inside uh, Louisiana. And then when I further investigated, uh, only about 50% was invested in the United States of America. Well, guess where the rest was? In foreign countries. So I tell people here in Louisiana and, and my colleagues and, and the legislature, I said, look, if we don't invest in Louisiana, then who is? You think China's going to come invest in Louisiana? Yeah, they are. They come and invest in our chemical plants and our land. They're doing that all over the country. They're doing that all over the world for that matter. So this is more than just about environmental policy. It's more, this is more, this has a lot to do with let's punish the United States, but we're going to let China do it. One other follow-up on that too, Treasurer. So I know in some of the past statements you've made on this, you've spoken more broadly about ESG investing and said that ESG investing may not be appropriate for public pension funds, generally given the fiduciary responsibility that, that pension funds have. Would you say that everything we've talked about here so far is in line with that? Or do you see that fiduciary responsibility as you know, something maybe different from a lot of the, the frictions that you've described here already today? Well, the, the problem is, look, you always have the interests of the pensioners that by law in mind, right? And, and the fiduciary is lawful. But BlackRock or companies like BlackRock have gotten so big that they can force policy. And, and they're taking their opinions. They're big enough to take their opinion and force it. That's how big they've gotten. So states like Louisiana said, no, you're not going to do it with our money. You know, if you, if you, if you want to invest in, in the things that, that are good for our state, then we're all in. But you, you, you're not going to force us to, to, you're not going to use our money and go someplace else. So we don't have a lot of money in BlackRock in Louisiana. You know, really what started this, y'all, was the whole Ukraine invasion. That's when it's really, when we really had to start paying attention to where our dollars were invested. And that sort of opened up a big can of worms and it hasn't stopped. And, and we pay a lot more attention now to, to where, our, where our pension dollars are invested. And, and this is not the end. This is just the beginning of, of paying attention and seeing how you can better invest your pension dollars to where it helps your state, your individual states. And that's been my message to nationally to treasurers. And we should be looking to see how we can invest our monies and pool our dollars to better invest, if not inside the state of Louisiana, certainly inside the boundaries of this country. Because when I get a phone call when Canada is fixing to invest $600 million in a chemical plant in Louisiana, it's coming from a Canada pension fund. Why isn't a Louisiana pension fund doing that instead? So it's things like that. It's, it's really being aware, you know, and I don't, there's no law or anything that I'm proposing 
I, what I propose is, hey, let's pay attention. Just don't don't be like a hamster on a wheel and just do it because I've always done it this way. You know, most of the money managers who 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 work for these pension systems in Louisiana are not from Louisiana. That doesn't mean if you're from Illinois or California, someplace else, you wouldn't have Louisiana's interests at heart. But I think I have a better connection to Louisiana than somebody that's not from Louisiana as a leader. Got it. So if I if I hear if I hear you, then it sounds like part of what the argument is is that it's completely consistent with that fiduciary responsibility to be trying to create the sort of economic multiplier effects that you get when you invest those public dollars from say your pension fund in you know within the state and that that is you know that that those uh, those spillover benefits so to speak those additional economic benefits you see as part and parcel to that uh, that fiduciary duty yeah i mean look you you have to get a return right that's that's the idea behind the pension funds it's going to take some time we've built awareness you know louisiana was the first state to divest from from BlackRock. And since that time, multiple states to include Texas and Florida. You know, my measly $800 million pales to what Florida did, you know. (laughs) Uh, But $800 million in Louisiana is a lot of money. Treasurer, we'd like to close by asking you another favorite question that we we ask our state treasurers, which is, uh, can you share any memorable story or two about uh, your office's experiences with returning unclaimed property? Oh, well, look, man, I I didn't know a whole lot about unclaimed property when I took over as treasurer. It's a billion-dollar fund, basically, in Louisiana. We've really done a great job at expanding that program. And, you know, we we used to do, I don't know, 27,000, 28,000 claims. We set a record for over 200,000 just a couple years ago. Records about a a, a amount of money um, we're getting out now. So technology is key. We've invested in technology because that this money used to get spent by the state of Louisiana. I think my biggest fame to claim is um, I forced the the government to stop using it. We went to court and then we settled uh, by allowing the people to vote on it. The people overwhelmingly voted that this money did not belong to government, that it belonged to individuals. And we created an unclaimed property trust fund. So all that money gets pooled in that trust fund. The interest gets sent to the state general fund, but the principal now stays in place. So it's a win-win. And look, we've we've gone back 1820. We've caught back up for 50 years. There's one reason why we did 200,000 claims in one year, because technology has caught up and we were able to, we're finding people. Look, we found a, a, a U.S. veteran out of New Orleans who was homeless after Katrina. Been homeless for 16 years, and his he had a lost CD that was over two hundred fifty thousand dollars. The guy was living on the street, and uh, he died about four months after we found him. And we re- reunited him with his family, and um, that family has a much better way of life today because through that. That issue, we were able to uh, reunite the dad and his only son, uh, who they hadn't talked in like 10 years. So um, the son now got the house, the money, got everything because the homeless gentleman actually had a home that had been sitting since Katrina that was in a pretty decent neighborhood that had some real value to it. So look, at the end of the day, I've, I've, we've sort of used unclaimed property to help veterans 
who um, because people just don't walk around looking at unclaimed property websites to see if they have money in it. They don't even think about it. So we've gotten very aggressive at it and something I've, I've really enjoyed participating in. Thanks so much to Louisiana Treasurer John Schroeder. We really appreciate you giving us some time today on the Public Money Pod. Well, it was my pleasure. I'm sorry I had to be so short, and maybe we can do it again. But uh, I always enjoy talking about the government and how we can be accountable and, and very transparent to the taxpayers, not only Louisiana, but from across the country. And it's, it's nice to be able to work with my colleagues from around the country on, on these very, very important issues. Thanks again to Treasurer Schroeder. What a, it was really great to have him on, and, and I appreciated his candid views on, on many things. We, I wanted to pull this week's rip from the headlines uh, from the state of Louisiana. So this week I, I got a story from, it's actually quite hot off the presses. It came out today, and we we're recording uh, December 4th. Um, but it's a, a story from the, the Advocate, which is in New Orleans, and the headline says, it says rising property insurance prices force a Louisiana school district to search for answers. This is something we touched on just with the sentence in our in our interview with the treasurer. But he did mention the fact of the, the storms in the last several years. Thank goodness there wasn't a huge one this year, but just all of the the rebuilding that has had to be done. As we've talked about before in with other states uh, on, on this podcast, Louisiana is certainly also a state that has seen rising home insurance prices largely because of the the, the rising cost of, of housing and, and the um, increasing damages from from natural disasters. So this story is written by David Mitchell. Again, came out December 4th, first week of December. It says Louisiana's insurance crisis has hit the system and other public school districts as it has many homeowners in the state with sharp increases in premiums and often for less coverage. School officials at the Ascension Parish School Board say they have paid twice as much money for half as much property insurance coverage as in the over the past four years. That property insurance premiums rose from about a little over a million dollars for 100 million in coverage to now 2.3 million for 50 million dollars in coverage. So half the coverage more than twice the cost. Similar thing with uh, some other schools, uh, the story cites Tammany Parish schools have seen a 38 increase uh, just in the past year. West Feliciana schools have seen a 65% increase between 2020 and 23. So these huge, uh, huge increases in, in insurance. And the, the story also notes the uh, it le- leads the school system to um, to try to meet the cost of their local tax dollars for those that have the wherewithal to do that. But others, they only have so much money available what do you do? And and this one school district, Ascension, decided to replace its one of its insurers uh, for mach- on machinery, um, an insurance agent that it had used for the past 30 years, and it went to a, a slightly cheaper for local firm. And that has then kind of kicked off this this whole debate there in in this uh, in the school district about the appropriateness of that and the cost and the risk and you know so again um, it, me for me personally I focused a lot on the the homeowners insurance crisis but obviously there are other property owners and building owners in the state and and to be sure school districts own a lot of buildings and um, and a lot of them you know, at a minimum need maintenance, maintenance, much less need to be insured for natural disasters. So it, it was just like an interesting slice into into this this thing that's going on, not just in Louisiana, but across the country. But uh, the story did a really good job of kind of localizing this and really kind of getting into some of those details. Justin, what were some of your takeaways from this? 
Yeah, it was really interesting. And just like you said, a nice extension on a lot of the work that you've been doing, keeping in mind that when we talk about, we've talked about Florida and, and peoples, for instance, and we've talked about California and wildfires, and there it was homes. And here you're talking about public infrastructure assets, which are just as much a public money concern as as anything else. Really, really interesting stuff. And I, you know, for me, the, the thing that really jumped out as I was as I was reading this and listening to you summarize it was just this whole question of materiality that we keep coming back to in the world of, of ESG. It's very difficult to say if you are a school district and you're disclosing your climate-related risks to investors in your official statement or your financial, your audit financial reports, whatever it might be. It's very difficult to be able to put numbers to that that the market would consider sort of material from the standpoint of what the, the way the lawyers might look at it, right? Saying, if you introduce new information about your vulnerability to sea level rise or catastrophic storms or whatever it might be, would that change the mix of information that's available to investors who are thinking about buying your bonds, for instance? And that's a that materiality notion is, is well fleshed out in a lot of other places, less so in the muni market right now. This takes the whole materiality question in a different direction, right? Because now we're talking about a material impact in a, in a materiality, different type of materiality, but a material impact on your operating budget <laughs> by suddenly having to pay a lot more for insurance and 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 to have less coverage, leaving you you know potentially more vulnerable because you have insurance underwriters who are just not willing to write the policies that are quite as large because there's so much more risk involved. So it does, as I was thinking about it, I was like, wow, this really does raise the question of what happens when you start to see big pressures on particularly local government budgets because insurance premiums suddenly become prohibitively high and end up having to do less of something else. Does it change the way that you think about capital budgeting? You know, do you build smaller buildings now, knowing that it costs that much more to insure them over time? Um, you can see this going in a lot of other directions, but it definitely puts that a, a different twist on that materiality question front and center. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Public Money Pod.